Welcome back to the Clerkship Success Series, part of the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast, where we discuss clinical approaches to common neurologic complaints tailored to medical students and other learners. My name is Sonia. And my name is Charlie. And we are your medical student co-hosts for this series. Today, we'll be talking about dizziness. And with us, we have Dr. Jeff Dewey, an assistant professor of neurology in the Division of Neuromuscular Medicine at Yale. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Dewey. Thanks for having me. So as always, we'd like to begin with our learning objectives for this episode. So first, we'll discuss the kinds of symptoms that people talk about when they complain about dizziness, quote unquote. And then we'll talk briefly about the vestibular system anatomy. And then we'll go into the the tricky question of this differentiating between central versus peripheral causes of vertigo, which is a common uh, complaint uh, under the umbrella of dizziness. And lastly, we'll talk about a few disease entities in each of these categories, central and peripheral vertigo. So let's dive right in. Uh, So dizziness is a fairly common neurologic complaint, uh, but it's actually a term that can be used by patients to describe a number of different symptoms. Dr. Dewey, what are some of the common meanings of dizziness that patients will describe? This is a very important question when you think about asking open-ended questions. Uh, I think I've heard many different descriptions over the years, and I, I actually try not to put words in the patient's mouth. So I've heard people say room spinning. I think that's what we all think of when we hear of vertigo. But in terms of similar descriptions I've seen uh, on a boat rocking back and forth, seasick, like the floor is moving underneath me, like I just got off a roller coaster, you know, all these descriptions of abnormal motion. I've also heard people describe uh, lightheadedness, uh, a swimming feeling, like they're floating, like their head is buzzing, uh, like they're going to pass out. And all of these descriptors uh, carry slightly different meaning. But again, I think it's really important to get the patient to put it in their own words as much as possible. So given that there are all of these discrete symptoms that patients can be experiencing, why is it important to differentiate which of these uh, the patient means when they say dizziness? So I think as we approach dizziness, uh, it's important to understand, are they talking about vertigo or are they talking about lightheadedness? And I include in those categories all of the similar descriptions because those will raise different different differentials uh, for your consideration. For instance, if someone's describing something closer to presyncope, you might think about cardiac causes, uh, orthostatic hypotension, uh, reflex or vasovagal syncope, whereas uh, you could also think about uh, something like, you know, a vertigo syndrome if they're describing something similar to that. So in the show, we talk about schemas or or different frameworks for students to approach a clinical problem. And I I think we're we're already starting to get at this, talking about different meanings of dizziness like vertigo or or presyncope. But just to be very specific about this, when a patient tells you that they have a chief complaint of dizziness, what are some of your initial questions to help build your problem representation? So I think I did already start to hint at this because this is automatically how I think about a chief complaint of dizziness. And my first real question I'm trying to answer is, is this lightheadedness or something on that spectrum, or is this vertigo or something on that spectrum? And that's really the first branch point in my framework. Oftentimes when I'm thinking about lightheadedness, I'm thinking about causes that are not strictly neurologic. So, uh, you know, presyncope, arrhythmias, uh, other cardiac causes, uh, or, or cardiovascular causes, uh, adrenal insufficiency, things like that, more quote medical or internal medicine like uh, causes. And when it's vertigo or something like that, then I'm thinking, all right, this is more likely to be primary neurologic. And then really the challenge becomes is this going to be a central neurologic cause or a peripheral neurologic cause? 
So it sounds like you really have this two-part question. The first part being, well, what does this patient mean when they say dizziness? Is this on a vertical spectrum or is this on the lightheadedness spectrum? And then your second question is, well, if it's vertical, then is it central or is it peripheral? So let's talk first um, about that first question. Is this vertical or uh, lightheadedness? Which, which camp is it in? Now, in an ideal world, the patient would give you exactly uh, how they felt. You know, I saw the room spinning or I felt my vision closing in. Very vivid descriptions. But as you alluded to earlier on, this is not oftentimes the case. And it's important to get patients to, to describe what they felt in their own words. Now, what other questions in the history would clue you in as to what the patient is experiencing? I always, a couple of times, try to get them to tell me in their own words. I'll say, paint a picture for me. Describe this as someone who can't experience it. Everything that's happened to you in the scope of, of this complaint. Uh, and often what I'm looking for at first are those descriptors that I gave earlier. Now, I give those with a grain of salt. There is a little bit of literature to suggest that uh, in patients who've been proven down the road to have a brainstem lesion or something, they describe a feeling that John's just like lightheadedness. So it's not a perfect science, but it's really helpful to get that description. And that character is, is number one in my book. I think other things that are important to consider are really the things we think of as cardinal features of any complaint. So uh, what was the onset like? Was it gradual or sudden? And, and when we say sudden, there's really even a spectrum within that. Did it come on over minutes or was it sort of thunderclap uh, and an acute ictus? Uh, what's been the duration? You know, some patients will wait days before coming in uh, with sort of a mild vertigo, or it may have been there for only five or 10 minutes and they were brought in by ambulance. Uh, what makes it better or worse? Uh, in particular, is there a postural component, uh, especially, you know, if we're thinking about lightheadedness or something, is it worse when the patient stands up? Uh, or is it related to position changes in other ways, like head rotation, lying or sitting up from lying down, uh, things like that? Uh, have there been any medications they've taken that have made it better or worse? Oftentimes, patients will try over-the-counter things, uh, some of the anti-emetics you can buy uh, at CVS, things like that, over-the-counter. Uh, you know, similar to the onset, but what was the timing of this? Has it been present since the beginning with waxing and waning? Has it been a totally constant symptom? Is it truly episodic or paroxysmal and that it comes and goes? And what, is, what are the durations of those episodes? Uh, and then, of course, our, our other sort of neurologic review of systems. Is there any double vision? Uh, is there any hearing loss or tinnitus? Uh, are they having a headache? Are they nauseous or vomiting? Uh, you know, has anyone told them their face is drooping, their speech is slurring? Are they choking on food? All of the things that really we're kind of focusing on cranial nerve and bulbar anatomy here, thinking about structures that are neighboring to our vestibular apparatus and, and nuclei. And then, of course, what other medical history could be contributory? Have they had a sudden deceleration neck injury or gotten neck chiropractic work that could make us think about a dissection? Was there a recent illness, perhaps even in the past couple of weeks, not just, you know, in the past 24 hours? Have they changed meds, gone up on doses, stopped meds? Did someone, you know, double their anti-epileptic dose? Uh, and then obviously common things being common, uh, are they using any substances that could uh, produce vertigo, alcohol, uh, hallucinogens, uh, other illicit drugs? Let's focus in a little bit more on vertigo because that is one of the more common symptoms that patients are referring to when they describe dizziness. And vertigo, of course, is this illusion of, of motion, which is commonly movement of the environment or the feeling of, of self-motion. And we've gone over the history. So let's say with our history, we're fairly certain that our patient is experiencing vertigo. 
looking back at your initial guiding questions, your framework, the second question is really, is this peripheral or central vertigo? Can you walk us through some of the anatomy behind vertigo and the, the vestibular system? And, and what do you mean by peripheral versus central? Yeah, so I like to think of uh, anatomy as it relates to vertigo from the outside in. Uh, and I think you're kind of hinting at that as well. So, you know, we think of our position sense uh, in terms of motion uh, as beginning in the inner ear and the vestibular apparatus. And what that really is, is a series of uh, canals that are filled with endolymph, which is sort of a viscous fluid, as well as otoliths or these, these crystals or stones. That canal is also lined by cilia, hair cells that move in response to shifting endolith or otoliths or endolymph for otoliths, excuse me. Uh, and so that really is what's giving the primary signal of motion to the vestibular nerve, which then carries these impulses back uh, to the brainstem via cranial nerve eight, and then to the vestibular nuclei where it's distributed to all the places this information is needed. So in the cerebellum to coordinate movement down into the spinal cord for some direct reflexes to the oculomotor nuclei for the vestibular ocular reflex. And then of course, up into sort of conscious perception of uh, sensation of motion. And so I think the other thing to remember also is the physiology of, of this vestibular information. So, you know, our, our vestibular apparatus are not like some of the peripheral sensors in, in the sense that they're only firing when you're moving. They're actually sort of a basal firing rate that's happening at all times. And when you move your head to the right, rotated, let's say, your right vestibular apparatus speeds up, your left one slows down. And that differential in firing rate is what is calculated as a, a sense of motion. And how, how big that differential is talks about the velocity. Uh, or the rotational velocity. And so as we talk later about some of the pathologic findings in different causes of vertigo, especially the peripheral causes, you know, it rather than memorizing sort of heuristics about which way nystagmus indicates which ear is going on, et cetera, uh, it really is helpful just to remember that basic physiology and reason it out from there. I want to also take an aside right now and talk a little bit about imbalance or disequilibrium because that is closely related and it is something that patients can often be referring to when they talk about dizziness. Um, and I think it will also help us further down the line when we get to the physical exam. So what systems contribute to our sense of balance or the, the sense of imbalance? So I think the big three to remember in terms of things that directly inform our position sense are the vestibular system, number one, uh, our vision, number two, and then the proprioceptive system uh, way out in the peripheral nerves at the joints, particularly in the ankles and in the feet and toes as, as relates to our balance with walking and standing. And if you think about the classic maneuver uh, to test this, which is the Romberg maneuver, uh, you have a patient stand with their feet together and then you close their eyes. So you're taking away one of those three inputs for position sense. And as a general rule, we need at least two out of the three to maintain good position. So if proprioception or vestibular function is affected and the eyes are closed, the patient will begin to feel off balance. Any one system is just not robust enough to compensate for motion in the same way. Now, some people think the Romberg is a cerebellar test and they're partly correct in that you need the cerebellum to do it. And if patients have cerebellar lesions, they're gonna say their balance is off, but cerebellar lesions in and of themselves uh, tend to cause more ataxic imbalance than like this true sense of floating or abnormal movement. Again, taken with a grain of salt, I'm sure we can find uh, examples to, to prove that wrong. Well, now that we've covered the history and the relevant anatomy, let's move on to the physical examination. What kinds of things do you look for? 
So, you know, typically we're called to see patients with vertigo in the emergency room. I think that's the most common place these consults happen. Probably second most common uh, is in the clinic setting, but patients develop it when they're hospitalized for other reasons too. But let's, let's presume we're seeing somebody in the emergency room. So, you know, point number one is always before you even hang up the phone, I think it's important to understand what the patient's level of arousal is. Vertigo in a patient who is drowsy or is losing consciousness is very, very concerning and needs to be addressed acutely whereas vertigo with preserved arousal and it's been going on for a couple of days is, is a little less acute. Um, so just knowing if you need to run or walk to the consult uh, is sometimes helpful. And once you get there, you get your own sense of a level of arousal. And then really, you know, aside from our usual thorough exam, we're going to focus on a few things that anatomically relate to this vestibular system. So we're looking at cranial nerves, especially those in and around the pons, but really all of the cranial nerve exam. Uh, you want to assess for any nystagmus with uh, sustained vision, especially not only laterally, but even in mid-gaze. So when a patient is sort of neutral, do they have any nystagmus? And we can describe nystagmus in many ways. Uh, remember that the typical convention is we describe horizontal nystagmus by the direction of the fast beat. So if the eyes are beating quickly to the left and moving slowly to the right, we would call that, and this is the patient's left, we would call that leftward beating horizontal jerk nystagmus. Now you can have nystagmus in different directions. So you can have rotational, you can have vertical, you can have horizontal, you can have retraction nystagmus. You also can have different patterns of movement. So jerk is the classic, but there's pendular nystagmus that's sort of evenly moving at all times. There's square wave nystagmus that's equal speed in both directions. Uh, so just, if you're not sure what to use, describe what you see, but be detailed and really focus on the direction, the speed, and sort of if there's any rotational component or not. The other thing to point out with nystagmus is, is it worse when they look in one direction or the other? And does the direction of nystagmus change? And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, other things to look at, uh, certainly a hearing exam, even a gross exam to finger rub, but also look in the ear canal. You know, one of the common causes can be a zoster, a shingles, uh, in other words, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome type two affecting the ear. Uh, and so if you never look, you're not gonna see it Similarly, inner, uh, middle ear infections can cause uh, vertigo as well. And then uh, we talked about the Romberg maneuver. Assessing gait is equally important uh, to look for, you know, particularly wide-based or ataxic gait. And of course, other cerebellar signs, finger, nose, finger, rapid alternating movements, mirroring. You can also see uh, dysmetria in gaze. So if you do rapid gaze from one direction to another, uh, that's another sort of subtle way to test cerebellar input. Uh, and also I think noting truncal ataxia is very important. A lot of the tests we do look at appendicular ataxia, but having a patient try to balance uh, on their butt on the edge of the bed without using their arms and legs is a good way to look for titubation or abnormal uh, truncal ataxia. And then lastly, there's some specialized maneuvers. So for instance, if you're trying to diagnose PPPV, you might do the Dix-Hallpike maneuver. If you're looking for vestibular neuritis versus a central lesion, you might do the HINCE exam. And we can talk a little bit more about those uh, maybe as they're relevant to pathology down the line. Let's go back to nystagmus for a, se for a second. It, going back to your framework about determining whether or not this is central or peripheral vertigo, how do those different features, the descriptors of nystagmus, help you in making that distinction? So nystagmus caused by vertigo is going to be jerk nystagmus, or far and away. There are, there are some exceptions to that. Uh, but in terms of just learning the high yield things, you're looking for jerk nystagmus. The thing you want to pay attention to is, is it unidirectional? In other words, no matter which direction the patient's looking, 
is that fast beat always the same or is it direction changing or what's sometimes called gaze evoked nystagmus? In the first example of unidirectional nystagmus, that's a reassuring finding for a peripheral lesion. And when I say reassuring, uh, I'm comparing the causes of peripheral to central. So we're always reassured when we find peripheral because central tends to indicate tumor demyelination stroke. We'll talk about that in a bit, but I'm always reassured to say something is not central when someone has vertigo. And so what you're looking for is when they look you know, straight ahead, you might see a little bit of a jerk. When they look one direction, that jerk is, is more pronounced. When they look the other, it might go away, but the direction never changes. If someone's looking to the right and they have right beating nystagmus and looking to the left and they have left beating nystagmus, that is concerning for a central lesion. Similarly, uh, in the absence of any substances that could cause it, vertical nystagmus is also concerning for a central lesion. Uh, rotational nystagmus tends to be more associated with a peripheral lesion, uh, and especially if you bring it out with positional testing, which we'll talk about in a bit. Are there other red flags or concerning findings on the examination that would point you more towards a central cause of vertigo? I sort of have a general rule that if there's any other cranial nerve deficit or focal neuro deficit for that matter, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm considering it central until proven otherwise by imaging. Uh, and I think that's a general rule I like to go by, you know, it, it in some sense seems like it's playing it a little safe. However, the consequences of missing a posterior fossa lesion that could cause vertigo can be dire. For instance, if someone has a bleed or a stroke that then swells and closes off that very narrow space uh, draining CSF, that can lead to a herniation syndrome quite quickly. So we're always very cautious and really want to be totally sure in our exam uh, that there are no other red flags. So it's kind of a big answer. I would say direction changing nystagmus, vertical nystagmus, or any other focal neuro deficit, and you have to worry that it's central. Uh, let's also come back to the Romberg. I know we talked about this earlier, um, but this is a test that is often confusing to interpret. And you mentioned that um, some people often think that it is a, a cerebellar test, but that's that's really not the case. So just to hone in on this a little bit more, what do, what exactly does a positive Romberg test tell you? So for me as a neuromuscular attending, uh, 99 times out of 100, it tells me someone has peripheral neuropathy. Uh, however, in the setting of acute vertigo, uh, probably nine times out of 10 or more, it's going to tell you someone has uh, an inner ear problem or a central cause of vertigo. Uh, other than that, you know, it's, it's tough to be too specific about it. I think it's interesting to think about the history of the Romberg test, at least what I was told about it was that it was developed uh, by a military general back in the time when syphilis ran rampant amongst soldiers. And so what it actually was a test for was tabes dorsalis uh, to see if the posterior columns were affected by syphilis infection. But again, those are the columns carrying proprioceptive information. So that's how I think about it. I think, you know, in these cases, it is helpful just remembering that uh, even a central cause of vertigo could make someone's Romberg abnormal if they're having abnormal vestibular input. And you mentioned two other specialized tests that we sometimes do for physical exam, and those are the Dix-Halpike and the Hintz exam. So let's start with the Dix-Halpike. Can you tell us more about that? So this is probably the one that everybody learns first, uh, and that is, it's really the, the bedside diagnostic test for benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, or maybe the P's are switched. I've never really known, but it's our test for BPPV at the bedside. Uh, I want to give a caveat that I think is really important. You should never do both of these tests in the same patient. They're for different clinical circumstances. I'll talk about the hints in a minute, but the Dix-Halpike is for a patient who's having episodic vertigo and does not currently feel particularly vertiginous because part of the positive uh, results of the test is bringing out vertigo in that patient. 
So it's important to explain this test to the patient because it's a little bit alarming. What you ask them to do is you're, you tell them, you're gonna, I'm going to lay you back. And what I want you to do is look over, we'll say right first, look over your right shoulder uh, with your head, turn it, you know, like you're looking over your shoulder and also use your eyes to look to the right as well. And I'm going to tip your head back a little bit after I lay you down. And what you're trying to do is get the patient to a position where they're flat on their back, they're looking to the right, and their head is tilted back about 30 degrees. And what this is doing is putting the horizontal semicircular canal uh, perpendicular to the ground. So where gravity will have the most effect on it. And when you turn it to one side, you're testing one of those, other side, you're testing the other. This is really a test for BPPV resulting from horizontal canal uh, otolith dislodgement, which is the most common by far. So, you know, pretty quickly, you try to take the patient from sitting up, looking forward into that position, and then you're going to hold it. If it's, if it's truly a positive test, you're going to see nothing for a few seconds. And then all of a sudden, what you'll see is that uh, the nystagmus comes out very prominently and the patient tells you they start to feel pretty awful because you're actually making that the otolith move in that ear through gravity uh, and, and giving them the sensation that they're moving when they're not, right? Their head is perfectly still. So you're bringing out their vertigo. Uh, the side that you do it to is the positive side. So then you want to, you can go into the Epley maneuver right away and treat them. And that's probably a, a conversation for a different talk. But basically, if you look it up on YouTube, it's a modified series of positions where you try to reposition the debris that's loose in that canal back into the place where it usually sits. Uh, and so it can actually be a curative treatment for vertigo. If you do it to one side and the patient has no symptoms, you do it to the other side. And if it's positive on that side, then same idea. But just keep in mind, it really should only be positive to one side and the patient should not feel dizzy before you start the test. Oftentimes what I'll see is, uh, you know, someone will do it in the emergency room and they say, oh yeah, they felt kind of bad to both sides. That's not a positive dexalpike. That's just someone having motion provoked vertigo. So if you want to really feel good about it, you have to do it right and interpret it correctly. That being said, when it's positive, it's quite striking. Uh, and if you look up some videos on YouTube, there are some good ones out there. Uh, you'll know it when you see it. So mm. that's the Dix-Hallpike test. The Hintz test is not appropriate for someone who's having episodic vertigo. The Hintz test was validated in patients who are having vertigo for, I think technically they, they required over 24 hours of persistent, so non-episodic vertigo that defined it as acute vestibular syndrome. But oftentimes we do it uh, at, a, at time points a little less than that and just sort of accept uh, the limitations. So the Hintz is an acronym and that tells you what to do in the test. So the first is the head impulse test. Uh, this is really a test of the vestibular ocular reflex. So what you're doing is you're having the patient look straight at the bridge of your nose, hold their head still, uh, and, or, and then you're basically gonna tell them to relax their neck and you're gonna move their head gently from side to side and get them loosened up. And then you very quickly, you'll sort of deviate the head to one side and then quickly move it back to the middle with your own hands. And what you're looking for is, are they able to maintain fixation straight ahead of them or do their eyes actually travel with their head and overshoot? And what that tells you is that whatever ear you move their head toward was not providing a sufficient signal for them to compensate with their eyes. So remember we talked earlier about the, the imbalance between signals telling your, your brainstem about velocity. If, if the nerve is damaged and they're not putting out enough signal, then their eyes will not correct fast enough and they'll overshoot. And what you'll generally see is actually a corrective saccade because then they realize, oh, I'm not looking at the nose. I got to look quickly and they bring their eyes back. So that's the head impulse. The N is nystagmus. And what you're looking for again is that reassuring unidirectional nystagmus that gets worse with direction in one gaze and better with direction in the other. Uh, 
And then the last part is test of skew. That's the TS. So this is what we do in babies all the time to look for ocular misalignment. Uh, you have the patient fixate again on a point and you, you cover one eye and then the other, and you do a cover uncover test. And what you're really looking for is, is there vertical shift of the eyes that suggests they have a vertical skew? We all have a tiny little bit of horizontal skew, especially if the target is up close to our face, but it's the vertical skew that's really alarming. So the maneuvers are one part of the HINTS exam. The interpretation is probably the most complicated part. But again, remember your physiology and you'll, you'll do okay. So in order to be reassured that someone has a peripheral cause of vertigo, you need the following and they all need to be there. One is that they have a positive head impulse only in one direction, meaning they had an overshoot or a corrective saccade only with head movement in one direction. Two is that they have unidirectional nystagmus uh, that also suggests a lesion in the same ear. And then three is that they have no vertical skew. Only when all three of those are present can you say with very good certainty that they have a peripheral uh, vestibular lesion. If any of those is not met, then you're bound to do imaging to look for a central cause of vertigo. And that's really what this test was studied for was, can we pick up or can we differentiate central versus peripheral causes of vertigo early in symptom course? The reason it matters is because in the first day or so after a small uh, posterior fossa stroke, MRI is in the mid eighties sensitivity, but it's not perfect. And so when you miss a stroke early on, again, as I said before, there can be downstream consequences that are quite dire. So this is mainly to help clinicians at the bedside decide whether they need to bring somebody in and watch them and get another set of imaging in 24 hours, et cetera. So we're starting to talk about neuroimaging and when that can be useful, but more broadly, what diagnostic tests do you consider for, for a patient with vertigo? One of the reasons vertigo is my favorite consult uh, is that you can actually diagnose it pretty securely at the bedside uh, if you're comfortable with the different maneuvers. So if you've done a thorough neurologic exam, you've walked the patient, you're able to get good cerebellar and cranial nerve testing, uh, and you've done your maneuvers and you know one of those maneuvers is positive because you chose the appropriate one and didn't do them both, then you can say with pretty good certainty that this is peripheral and you actually don't need any other diagnostics as long as you know the basic medical stuff has been done. They don't have any uh, uh, abnormal EKG, any major electrolyte abnormalities, et cetera, which is really kind of standard of care uh, in the emergency room at this point. If let's say you're not certain or you find a focal neuro deficit or uh, you know, something else doesn't quite sit right, in most cases, you're gonna be bound to do an MRI. And the reason you, uh, a CT is often not useful, we'll do it first to rule out a large mass lesion or, or a hemorrhagic stroke. Uh, but oftentimes the lesions that cause this symptom are gonna be small uh, and in an area where CT is very limited by bone artifact. And so you really need that MRI with and without contrast. Probably the one exception is if you're worried about an arterial dissection, in which case you're going to start with the CT angiogram, but often get an MRI later to look for any downstream infarcts as a result of that. I think other things that are good to include on the workup in the right circumstances are toxicology screens, uh, serum ethanol levels, uh, drug levels, particularly anti-epileptic drugs, uh, if you think uh, a high level is causing the symptoms. But oftentimes I'll tailor those uh, to the clinical context. Dr. Dio, you've already talked about some conditions that involve either peripheral or central vertical. You've talked about BPPV and uh, central causes. You've talked about cerebellar strokes. You've talked about um, vertebral dissection. And so let's summarize a few conditions that medical students should know about uh, in both peripheral and central vertical. 
So let me give those to you sort of in, in order of yield based on epidemiology. So in terms of peripheral lesions uh, or peripheral problems, uh, your, your likely candidates are going to be uh, BPPV, Meniere's disease, and vestibular neuritis. Uh, in terms of central causes, uh, it's going to be ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, demyelination, uh, and then probably uh, a tumor of some kind, either uh, a cerebellopontine angle tumor or an intrinsic tumor in the brainstem or cerebellum. I do think it's also worth mentioning uh, so-called vestibular or basilar migraines. Uh, these are diagnoses of exclusion, but can be uh, probably underdiagnosed causes of uh, acute vertigo. Uh, in particular, we tend to see them in patients who have a propensity for getting carsick. Uh, and I'm, you know, I don't know exactly what the connection is there pathophysiologically, uh, but having spoken to some headache folks, uh, they do tend to see that. So just something worth asking about if that's on your differential. But again, this is really a diagnosis of exclusion. And also we tend to be a little careful using uh, sumatriptan or any other triptans in these patients due to a concern uh, for increased risk of stroke. Now the data on that may have changed and that's an old old dog thing from residency that I learned, but uh, worth considering and at least looking back into if that's something you're considering. Perfect. And let's go over some of these conditions and maybe talk about some of the uh, the high yields or whatever points associated with each of these conditions, uh, starting with BPPV. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the quick summary again. So again, BPPV is probably going to be the most common cause of acute vertigo. Uh, and the classic story or illness script that you'll hear uh, is somebody who you know, for some reason it tends to happen at night, but they, they were doing fine. And then they moved, generally turned their head or something like that, and suddenly developed very acute vertigo. Uh, it tends to be short. So that's the paroxysmal part on the order of minutes, not too much longer. You know, it, uh, an episode of BPPV doesn't tend to last hours without at least some vertigo-free period. Uh, and again, it's really motion triggered. That's the, par that's the positional part. Uh, Oftentimes rotational movements are what bring it along. During the vertigo, there can be quite severe uh, symptoms. Patients can be nauseous, they can vomit, they can feel imbalanced. Uh, but things that you shouldn't see are prominent ataxia. Uh, you shouldn't have any hearing loss or tinnitus. And again, it should be fairly self-limited. And if they sit perfectly still, they should be able to be symptom-free. Since BBPV, as you mentioned, is the most common cause of vertigo, Let's talk briefly about the treatment. And you did mention the epilene maneuver just a while ago. Yeah, so I would recommend uh, probably the easiest way to learn the epilene uh, is to search for a video. And it's often called the modified epilene. I'm not actually sure what the unmodified epilene is, but basically it's a series of three positions that you have the patient hold for about a minute each or until their vertigo goes away after they assume that position. Uh, and it finishes with them sort of sitting up and just kind of holding still for a second. And the idea is that you've used uh, kind of like those old labyrinth games. You're trying to get the, the otoliths to go back into the place they came from by repositioning the patient around. Some of the other acute treatments that are often pretty effective, uh, the one we use most commonly is meclizine as an anti-vertigo agent. Uh, there is some evidence that uh, some of the other anti-motion sickness drugs can be effective. Oftentimes if in the ED setting, I find Valium uh, to be effective as a, as a short-term anti-emetic and anti-vertigo agent. Uh, and then really in the long term, uh, it's about vestibular rehabilitation. There has been some study that patients can do the epile on themselves using a video as a guide with good effect. And so oftentimes teaching them once, either in, in the emergency room or in a physical therapy setting, and then letting them do that to themselves as needed uh, is quite effective. In general, uh, this will go away. And I often reassure patients of that. That being said, I find, and I don't know what the data is, but I find that if patients have had it once 
they tend to be prone to it happening again. And age is certainly a risk factor for developing BPPV, I think because you accumulate more debris in this endolymph space, that's just more stuff uh, to, to fall out of line. Funny story, my dad used to have pretty bad vertigo that now looking back, I think it might've been BPPV and uh, he never had the aptly maneuver done for him. He's just, for some reason, he obtained MRIs and stuff. Um, mm. But this was back in Singapore, and I think our treatment uh, decisions are a bit different over there. But anyways, uh, side point, moving yeah. on to uh, Meniere's disease. So can you talk about that and uh, how it's treated? Yeah, so Meniere's is really uh, considered, you know, some will argue about the pathophysiology but it's essentially a fluid buildup in the inner ear, often called endolymphatic hydrops. And so basically the treatment modalities tend to be aimed at reducing that fluid. There is some evidence for diuretics actually as a treatment. Uh, and oftentimes patients will also respond to the same uh, symptomatic treatment during an episode. Uh, the thing to remember about these episodes is they tend to be a little bit longer on the course of minutes to hours uh, and often are associated with hearing loss tinnitus or what some patients will describe as a full sensation in the ear. Uh, the typical analogy that I hear is that, you know, when you go swimming and you get water stuck in your ear for a little while, so they can't hear very well and it feels like there's something there. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there, there is in a way, uh, if, if you consider this extra fluid uh, to be something in the inner ear. Um, the one crossover perhaps where they can also lose hearing uh, is in some of the acute neuritis that we'll talk about in a second. But again, these should be self-limited episodes. Oftentimes when Meniere's is on the table, I will involve uh, an otolaryngologist as well. And as you mentioned, uh, our last peripheral uh, vertical cause of vestibular neuritis and along with that, labyrinthitis. Yeah, so vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis, vestibular neuronitis, uh, they're all often confused, but I think there is a little bit of a distinction. So vestibular neuritis or neuronitis, if you want to sound a little fancier, are kind of the things we talked about earlier. So this, the classic presentation is can be fairly abrupt in onset, but, but persistent vertigo uh, for at least a day or two. Although oftentimes you'll see patients, they'll, they'll get sort of fed up at the 18 to 24 hour mark. And that's when they show up in the emergency room. Uh, when it's associated with hearing loss or tinnitus, then it's often categorized as uh, acoustic neuritis uh, or labyrinthitis. Uh, and really that's, that's really the only thing that distinguishes the two. They're both inflammatory responses. Uh, I think Typically, if you really dig in, patients may tell you they had a viral illness or you know, fatigue or something sort of nonspecific a week or two prior. And then the presumed pathophysiology is, a, is an abnormal immune response, molecular mimicry, something like that. Uh, sometimes there is no predisposing factor and it just happens. Uh, it's treated, again, symptomatically with really very much the same agents. There's a little bit of data to suggest that antivirals and or uh, corticosteroids in the form of like a medrol dose pack can reduce symptoms, although a lot of these uh, symptoms were measured using nystagmograms where the patients are put in a dark set of goggles and there's no fixation and there's a really sensitive measure of the degree of nystagmus. If you look at the symptomatic outcomes, there's really often not enough benefit from either treatment uh, to say that there's good evidence to support it. But I think a lot of times we'll try it because we'll do any, the patients will do anything to feel better. It's really an awful place to be. Uh, but the good news is, you know, it, it gets better, usually slower than it got worse. Uh, and I tell them the next few days are probably going to be pretty awful, but by the end of a week or two, they're going to be feeling a lot better. And that's generally been my experience. Uh, even though if you ask them a month or two later, they might still get a little bit of irritation 
from, you know, rotational activities or something like that. I had a patient who said uh, that his golf game was still off because every time he swung, he got a brief sort of disequilibrium, but everything else was totally fine. Uh, so there is this, this long tail of healing. So we've covered quite a bit today. Uh, to recap, we've talked a lot about the different meanings of dizziness, things like vertigo versus presyncope versus lightheadedness or disequilibrium. And really the first step to working up this complaint of dizziness is to di distinguish which of these the patient is ex experiencing. And the history is key to helping us differentiate between these. Each of these has different etiologies and differential diagnoses. Uh, but if we determine that the patient is experiencing vertigo, the next step is really to figure out, is this central or peripheral vertigo? Where along the anatomical pathway is the lesion? And the physical examination can be very helpful in figuring this out, particularly things like testing for nystagmus and looking for other focal neurologic deficits. The history is still important here too. When we talked about the presentation and course of different vertigo syndromes, including BPPV and Meniere's disease, um, together the, the history and the physical more often than not are sufficient for making the diagnosis, but neuroimaging can certainly be considered, particularly if there's concern for a central problem. So that's our clinical approach to dizziness and vertigo. Uh, thank you, Dr. Dewey, for walking us through this. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. And be sure to check out our show notes on our website. 